0: Good morning. As Corey said, my name is David, and we always introduce ourselves and say it's our privilege to get to preach. But it honestly is my privilege to get to preach to you today on biblical manhood. I said in the first service a few things. One, uh, Friday, I was sitting in a counseling session, and all of a sudden my throat started getting like real tight for some reason. I didn't know like what was going on. It's kind of weird. Not like I was panicking, like I was not going to be able to breathe, but it's just odd. And then so through the weekend, I've kind of felt off just a little bit and woke up this morning just feeling drained, no energy, just praying that God would come up here and just speak through me, that it'd be him and not me. And just a testimony of God's goodness, man, I I felt like super energetic. My throat didn't bother me literally until I went back to my seat and I was like, oh yeah, my throat's sore. It's bothering me. I'm not sick though. I think it's just allergies, all right? So don't freak out if you shook my hand. But man, this sermon on biblical manhood, it rocked me all week. Like, if I'm just being honest with you, like, it, it's super convicting, it's hard, it's not easy, and some of you are going to leave here mad at me. Some of you are going to leave here and think, and be like, thanks a lot, my wife nudged me 15 times during this. Or maybe if you're a single dude in the room, you're like, you're going to feel like I'm pointing a finger at you and, and calling you out. I'm not, the Bible is, all right? Like, whatever, that you may feel, this is because it's God's word, and it is going to be convicting, it's going to speak to you. And, like I said, it convicted me. My wife and I, we had a date night last night. It's been a bit. Like, no kids, no one else, just her and I. We'll give each other, like, one-on-one attention. And as we were sitting there talking, I said, hey, like, I asked her, okay? She did not do this, like, on her own accord. I said, let's walk through these characteristics, these qualifications for an elder. Uh, just tell me how I'm doing. And so she did. And, like, some of them, are, it's hard to hear. She's like, you're struggling in that spot. You need to do better you're doing really good over here. You're doing, you're doing, used to do bad in this. You're doing better in this now. And I was like, good to hear. It really is. Like as hard as it is to hear, it's good to hear because it makes me like have to reflect and, and examine myself as a man and be like, all right, where am I at? Am I living out what God has called for me to do as a man? And the reason why we're talk, talking about biblical manhood is because we're preaching through a series called Amago Day. We're looking at Who we are as we are created in the image of God. That's what Imago Dei means. It means to be created in his image. Corey unpacked that last week for you. And when we look at this of who we are, we're creating the image of God. When he says that, he's going to create us in his image. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Because we're created in in the image of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And that matters. It matters because it makes up who we are. So as we live out biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, we're reflecting the Trinity. We're not just trying to be like, well, I'm going to be like the Father or I'm going to be like the Son. No, you are reflecting all of them together. And so there's a lot there that I could unpack, and that's, but that's for a different sermon. But here's the thing. So God, as he said that, then he creates Adam from the dust. He makes him into a man. He breathes life into this lifeless body, and he creates him, but then what does he do? He sees that it's not good for him to have no helper, to be alone, and so he creates Eve, and what we know from this is that the Bible and almost every English translation, this is something I've just been studying this week, and I made the caveat in the first service that I've not fully dived into this, so I'm not staking my flag on this and saying this is 100% what I believe, okay, but as I read it, The Hebrew word for rib does not mean physical rib. It means side. Because the same Hebrew word they used for rib in Genesis where it's talking about creation is the same word they use as they're making the Ark of the Covenant, which is a huge box. It's like very... It's just—it's a huge box. All right? I can't—I don't have time. I went way over. So we're just—it's a big box. It's very, very important. Okay, they had four gold rings that the dudes would carry it with, and so they say in there the same word for side or rib. They say put two gold rings on each side of this box, the Ark of the Covenant. And so the reason why this matters and this is important is because literally what the scripture then may be saying, and I got more study to do, is it's not that he took a rib out and you're just. You women are just a piece of a man. You're, you're, you're inferior. You're literally a side, a side of man. That's why when it says that a man will leave his mother and father and a woman will leave her mother and father and they will become one flesh, it's complete. It's complete. This is important. Like that's, That matters. And so as a man then, whether you're in this room as a married man or a single man, you're reflecting, you're part of the image of God. Like There's characteristics that we carry that women do not. There's things that they do that we do not do. And so it's very, very important for us to understand that, but also to see that God created man and woman. He did not create people who could decide their gender based on how they felt. All right, I know red flags are going up. I get it. I know I'm on social media, and I'll take the heat because I'm going to go with what the Bible says and not what culture says. All right, I can deal with it because I feel like I am a biblical man sometimes, and I'll take this one. Because it has to be said. It has to be said. Our biology is happening in science. That's clear. That's there. That's not for, to question. But yet, God's the one that created the science. He's the one that created the biology. And so when we look at that God created one man and one woman with the purpose of these two human beings, then in the Imago day, multiplying the biology matters. Okay? And so when we talk about biblical manhood, this is not what culture is calling toxic masculinity. It's not. Because what the culture is calling toxic masculinity is a form of masculinity that is not what I'm going to talk about from the Bible. It's about how strong you are, how many beers you drink, how many women you've slept with, whatever. I don't care about that. No one cares. No one cares how tough you were in high school. No one cares how many girls you slept with in high school. It won't matter. All that matters is, like, do you take care of your family and pay your bills and, like, contribute to society 20 years after high school? No one's bragging about that still. So we look at this and we understand God's made us very, very different, and yet we're very much the same because we're creating his image. And so we're going to break this down and we're going to look at this and understand that God's got commands for us to live out, and we are going to look at the qualifications for elders. As we, this is a topical sermon series, the Imago Day, but yet we're preaching expository sermons from a text in the Bible, picking it apart. And so as we look, like where's a text that speaks clearly to who a man is and who a man isn't, this is it. Because it's very, very clear that, hey, this is what we need to do. Whether you're trying to be an elder in the church or not, so that is not your out today, men. You can go like, I don't aspire to be an elder or pastor, so that's not me. Doesn't matter. This still applies to you fully. But why is this an issue? Like, why do we have to like go over this? And like, because it may not happen. Like, we sometimes we don't allow that to happen. And Corey's big idea from last week was you can't have the kingdom of God without the king. And the, so that's the problem here at biblical manhood. Is sometimes we want to be king of our own hearts. We want to be in control. We don't want God or anyone else to tell us how we are to live and act and conduct ourselves because we say, I'm in charge, I'm ruling, I'm completely autonomous, no one can tell me what to do. And yet God said, no, I created you and I am going to tell you how to do this, and if you don't, you're going to see the ramifications of it, which we'll get to. And so we're going to just dig into it. First thing first, what is biblical manhood? I'm going to break down each of these qualifications or characteristics in this text, and look at it. So the first one is this. It says, my bad, here we go, above reproach. This is a life free of habitual sin or less than biblical behaviors as a regular rhythm of your life. I'm going to say that one more time. This is a life free of habitual sin or less than biblical behaviors as a regular rhythm of your life. Because some of us have habitual sins that we will wrestle with on and off in our lives. But sometimes the problem is what we'll do is we will completely just accept those as the norm. I'm like, well, I'm really good in all these other areas, so it's okay that I have this lingering sin. And you try to hide it the best you can, but some people know about it. And what that's doing is you're not above reproach. You're not seen as someone who can be respected, which we'll get to. We're trying to say, I can do this on my own without meeting God's standards, and no one's going to matter. But yet it goes deeper than that. It really does. Like Billy Graham, if you don't know who he is, he's the greatest probably evangelist in the past hundred years to live. The dude just led hundreds of thousands, not millions of people to Christ. There's preaching. He has some requirements in his life. He would not be in a room alone with a woman who was not his wife. He got mocked for that. He also had a rule that he wouldn't ride in a vehicle with a woman who was not his wife. I personally try to apply some of those to my own life. I'm not going to ride in a vehicle with someone who is not my wife. And some people think that's ridiculous. I've been made fun of by people who are not Christians for that. And the reason being is because I don't need you seeing me driving around with someone who's not my wife. You think, what are they doing hanging out? A few years ago, we were having a covenant member party, and we didn't have the space to do it. We would do it at the skating rink that Mark Hannah owns. And so we had to rent a U-Haul so we could haul everything down there. And Aaron, our director of operations, she called me and said, hey, I'm going to go get that U-Haul, and then we'll have it at the church in a little bit, and then I'm going to leave my van at there, and I'll, and I'll have to have Gabe later take me. And I was like, oh, I could just, I literally live five minutes from the U-Haul place. And so I'm like, just come pick, pick me up. But then immediately, what I did is I took Emily, that's my wife, I said, Emily, I just want you to know, because she works from home, my wife works from home, and I was like, hey, I'm, Aaron's coming to pick me up. We're going to ride down to King's Towing in Maryville, together and I'm going to take the U-Haul from there. And She's like, why, why are you telling me this? I was like, because you're going to know. You're going to know where I'm at because I don't want any question to why me and Aaron are riding around on a Friday afternoon together when we're off, supposed to be off work. And some people think, well, that's craziness, but I want to be above reproach. And so you as men, you need to think, are you above reproach in how you conduct yourselves around other women, around your just, and in, in not just that, but in your, in your behaviors and your sinful acts? Like, do you let them become one-offs, or is it a habitual sin that just continues to go and to go and to grow and grow in your life? The next thing then is very similar. It's a husband of one wife. That means you're faithfully married to one woman. That doesn't mean you're faithful to a new woman every so many years, You're faithful to one woman. And now as a qualification for elder, we could dig into that, but that's not the purpose of the sermon. It's like, well, what if I've been divorced before? Well, there's always different things to look at. Were you a believer when you got divorced? What was the nature of the divorce? Was there biblical grounds for the divorce? How did it all play out? But that's not for this time. But you say, okay, well, I'm I'm married. I don't cheat on my wife. That's cool. How much are you just sitting around ignoring her? You're not there for her. You've emotionally, physically abandoned her, and she lives her life isolated from you. You just live in the same home. How are you being a husband of one wife? You're a husband and no wife. You're just there. You're present. Or you're just repeatedly on porn, nonstop. That's your, that's your go-to. That's cyber cheating. It's still cheating. You're not... Some innocent person saying, oh, no one's hurt. No, you're, if anything, you're hurting the Imago Day, by the people whom you're watching and also then your wife saying that she doesn't matter. Maybe at work you are way too flirtatious with the other women that you work with, your female co-workers, always dropping some lines, making sure that you stand a little closer. Whatever it is that you can do to be flirtatious. That doesn't make you above reproach, and it's also, I would say, calling into your character how much you really love your wife and that you're being a husband of one wife. We need to be able to pursue our wives, continually dating them, loving them, and protecting and caring for them. It does not stop once you say, I do. There's a responsibility you take when you say, I do. But how do you do that? Well, the next characteristic is to be sober-minded then. So if we're living with a gospel worldview, we're taking this and we're looking at everything we do through the lens of this, through the gospel, that's how we can be sober-minded. This is where I struggle. I struggle with this. I'll, I'll be going into a situation that I know could be semi confrontational or a hard conversation, and instantly my mind goes in a million directions. This is going to go bad. It's going to go this. It's gonna, this is going to happen. And that's one of the things my wife said last night as we were at our date night eating dinner. She's like, You do that. You've gotten better, but you still do that. Like, you think you blow things out of proportion, and when you're done with it, you're like, Oh, that actually went really good. I cannot sometimes be sober minded. Sober minded also be like, Just impulsive actions. Just You don't take the time to filter things through. How does this actually work out through a gospel lens? Your first thing is that you just do what you want to do and you react. And what we do then, and not living out biblical manhood, is that we're not putting our wife, our family, or others first. And that's the picture that the gospel paints, is that we should be doing those things first. We put others before ourselves. We serve other people. Well, And to do that then, the next characteristic is be self-controlled. And simply put, this is not allowing your desires, your lust, and your anger to drive you, but rather the Holy Spirit indwelling in you is the driving force of how you act out in every sphere of life. What is your normal reaction? Is it to blow up? Is it to things are hard, so I'm going to go look at porn. Things are hard, so I'm going to overeat. Things are hard, so I'm just going to retreat and go sit in my room and watch, you know, The Office for the 17th time in the world. That could be me at times. I was like, yeah, I'm just check out. I'm just going to check out. Like, whatever it is, or you blow up and you're mad. Like, we have to allow when we're faced with temptations and trials and just difficulties for all that stuff that we have a control to be sober-minded that we are able to have that self-control to even think that way and then the next one is to be respectable if you do these other ones that we just listed really you're going to be respectable and here's the deal with being respected this is not on terms of the world okay this is not on terms of the world Because the world would tell you, like, man, you got to dress good, you got to look good, you got to drive the right car, you got to do all these things. I'm going to tell you right now, like, I do care about that. Like, I do. Um, I'm weird. I ironed this shirt, the shirt that none of y'all even will see. Like, that's how weird I am. I packed an iron to go to Indonesia on a mission trip because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to iron my clothes. Like, I got issues, okay? So I care about how I dress. I care about how I look. I probably spend more time in the bathroom shaving my head and all that stuff than Emily spends sometimes. And she's like, you need to get out of my way. So I am not, by any means, hear me, because I'm, I'm just coming out swinging today. I'm not giving any of you men an out that, like, hey, like you're, the way you look doesn't matter so like if you do just show up in like wrinkled clothes that like w- were balled up in a you know a drawer or a basket and you don't like care about your hygiene and all that good luck leading someone anywhere for real I'm just biblically I think I can back that up and that God expects us to like be able to lead, and so we should take care of ourselves because he's created us in his image. So like a little bit of exercise and personal hygiene and maybe iron your clothes, not your undershirt because that's weird, but like do something, okay? I'm being for real with this, but that is not the respectable that he's looking at here. It's the respectable in the terms of are you living out characteristics that people look at you like, man, I, I could follow that guy. I could follow him. We say that if someone's coming here to plant the church, that if you can lead someone in our church, you can take them. I mean, like, if, if, if whoever, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant the church. Cool. You can ask anyone in this building, anyone in the previous service, anyone who's part of Heights, hey, do you want to go with me? I'm going to plant the church in whatever city. You can lead them. But I guarantee you, if you're not respectable, they ain't following you. They ain't going to follow you. The next one is this, is to be hospitable. This is a hard one because what we do is we automatically go in this framework that being hospitable is like a woman's job, and I'm not saying that to be like stupid or sarcastic or try to get jabbing jab at women or be misogynistic at all. Just I think that's like a cultural thing. We think that's a woman's job. She's to cook some food and have the house clean and all this. I'm gonna tell you right now, I love being hospitable. I love having people over my house. There's several of you who just come in and go through my house. You have my garage code, my front door code, and you go use my garage gym and do whatever you want. Because even if I'm not there, I want to be hospitable. We host the missional community. I love hosting missional community. Having people over to our house every single week, inviting them in. I'm, and, like, I go to great detail to make sure, like, my house is clean. I'm not going to have you show up to, my, to a dirty house because that's not hospitable. I have two 13-year-old boys. Like, we make sure that toilet is clean. Like, for real. I was 13 once. Sometimes I'm 39. I still miss, right? My point being is, like, we need to be hospitable. And so when you look at all the different things that are connected to that, I mean, do you make people feel welcome here? Or do you see someone who's excluded and not really feeling like they're part of it, and, they all, and they're just sitting there? Do you go and do you talk to them? Do you engage them? Do you, do you do that in your workplace? Now, some of you are just saying, that's right, no one ever talks to me, ever. I sit here. Yeah. If you go and you sit in the exact same seat every single Sunday and you never get up and you're not talking to anyone, and you just don't wonder why anyone comes to you, you're the one not being hospitable, not everybody else. We're called to be hospitable. And I will say this too, because like people are thinking, well, man, I'm not married. Maybe in this room, you got some single dudes. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not hospitable, like, you take a girl to your house, like, after a date, and it's all dirty and disgusting, or you're not real welcoming, yeah, good luck with that. Like, I mean, unless she's dirty, too, I guess. I don't know. But, like, think about it. Like, you gotta, you got to see this and say, man, I need to live this out because I want to be a biblical man. He's calling, he's calling me to be hospitable, to be welcoming people in we'll talk more about that other stuff and how that applies because there's some areas in there. But the next one's able to teach. Now with this able to teach, you say, well, this one, that really is only specifically for elders. And I would say, yeah, that is a very strong requirement for someone to be an elder in the church is they need to be able to teach. That does not mean they're able to preach. They need to be able to handle God's word in a way that they can teach other people the gospel and all the implications of it from one cover of the Bible to the other cover in different arenas of teaching. That does not mean that someone has to stand up here and preach, nor that they have to do so to be an elder. Now, for those of you who are like, well, that's never going to be me. I don't want to be an elder, and I definitely don't want to preach. You need to be able to handle God's word efficiently in your homes because you have a wife and kids, and you need to be able to lead them to Jesus time and time again. And then you might say, well, I'm single. How does that apply to me? Because if any woman is here who's looking for someone to date, I'm going to tell you now, don't date someone who doesn't love Jesus. And so if they're not willing to do that, then don't date them because they're not going to lead you later. They're just going to be like, no, that's not me. Like, and I can struggle in this. I struggle and miss opportunities in my home to always come back to the Bible. Sometimes I'm really good about it. Some seasons I'm not, some seasons I am. But we need to be able to teach each and every one of us and all of you it's, well, I shouldn't say all of you, we only did child dedications in the first service, but if you were here a few weeks ago, we did child dedications, and it still applies to you. As we did the child dedication, I asked parents, like, hey, are you, will you do this for your kids? Will you point them to Jesus? And they're like, yes, we will, yes, we will. They said all those things. And then I asked, if you're related to these families, stand up. If you're in a missional community with these people, stand up. If you're a regular attender a covenant member, stand up. So basically at that time, almost every single person in the building is standing up. And I said, will you help in guiding these children to Jesus? And everyone's like, we will, we will, all the different questions I asked. And so I say all that to say, you, even as a single man, if you're in a missional community, which you need to be, you're going to serve on kids at some point in that missional community on a rotation and stop whining about it because everyone whines and cries about doing it. So stop, because it's your opportunity then to handle God's word, to teach them. You get an hour with kids, and it's practice if you're single. Show off to that single girl, look, look how good I was handling these kids. that a sell, that's attractive, all right? Next, not to be a drunkard. I'm gonna make this real quick. Your manhood is not based on how many beers you can drink. No one cares what you did in your fraternity, how you shotgun beers. It doesn't matter. Those days are gone. Grow up. Like, for real. Now, if you want to go have a drink, go have a drink. I don't care. What I won't do, because I thought, I almost caught myself in the last service, I was going to say, have X amount of numbers of drinks. And I know one of y'all will be all legalistic and be like, man, I got a DUI. David said I could have six drinks. <laughs> yeah, but not like six Long Island iced teas. Like, that'll, that'll probably get you. So I'm not going to say that. But the reality of it is, you want to drink, drink. But don't get drunk. I think it'd be stupid if you're drinking every single day, you're gonna kill your liver. It's probably not a smart move. Just take care of yourself. That's pretty straightforward. The next one is this. Not violent, but gentle. If your go-to is to throw hands every time you're angry, or to, in a violent way, elevate your voice bigger than everyone else around you, make yourself feel bigger, intimidate the person by you because they are smaller than you, or even just be able to, maybe they're bigger, but you know how to just use your abilities and talking and size, and and maybe they are intimidated by you physically. If that's your go-to, that's not manhood. I've told several kids I've had some opportunities, like with coaching basketballs, like, no one's going to care how tough you were in seventh grade in 20 years." No one cares. No one even remembers. It doesn't really matter. Like, and I will, but I will say this too, on the other hand, I have not been in a fight since my junior high school, which I won, by the way. but regardless just thought, they don't care. You're right, Gabe, they don't care. I care. I, I, I'd care if I lost. As a man, though, you should have the ability to get violent when the time calls. Because I know there's some dudes in this room who if something was happening to me or my family, they got my back. And I'll tell you right now, like, something goes down, I'm, I'm, I'm there. Like, that's part of shepherding in church. Like, I, I care enough. Like, that's not my go-to. It shouldn't be my go-to. That's not biblical manhood. But we should have the tendency to be able to if we had to. So that's not saying you got to be some tough guy, because that's not what your manhood's judged on or measured by. But don't be afraid to protect, because that's one of our callings to do is to protect. Next is to not be quarrelsome. I struggle with this. i gonna tell you why. If I know that I'm right in any type of dispute or argument with somebody, and I know for a fact you're wrong... I am going to be sarcastic and just drive my point home, because I am an arrogant jerk sometimes. Just them, I'm arrogant sometimes, and if I know I'm right, I'm like, man, I'm going to do this. And then my problem is I will pick fights just to be able to prove myself right. If you're saying something's wrong, that's wrong, and I don't even, I'm not even involved in it, I'll be like, yeah, but did you know this? And they're like, well, I wasn't even talking to you. I'm like, I know, but I'm going to tell you about how smart I am. That's not cool. Like, That's not, it doesn't work. Okay. And so the Bible saying for an elder to not be quarrelsome, I'm working on that. I I think I haven't coming back from my sabbatical. I think I've seen improvement in it, but that shouldn't be us. We shouldn't be looking to like nitpick our kids, argue everything, argue with our wives, argue with our coworkers, always making everything into a a hill to die on. That shouldn't be us. The next one is this is not a lover of money. So if you're a workaholic, and your justification for it is that you're providing for your family. You don't really love your family. You love the things you're giving them. And then here's the reality of it is they don't love you. They love the things you're giving them. And as soon as that dries up, it's going to go away. And you're going to have this family that's a wreck. So like we, when I, well, I'm a man. I'm going to go provide. 100% dude, you, you need to go work. Like there's zero excuse not to have a job, especially in this time in society like everywhere is hiring. I don't care if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's. The Bible says you don't work, you don't eat, and I think that's very, very true. Like, we need to be men, and we need to have jobs, and we need to be providing. That doesn't mean you're the primary breadwinner. You don't have to make more than your wife, Like you don't have to. You just need to go have a job, but if it's just so you can have things, that's not okay, and if you're single, and you're saying, well, what does that matter? Dude, if you're living in your mom and dad's basement playing video games and you just have a part-time job at GameStop, she probably won't want to marry you. Like, think about this. That's, that, that's saying I'm not a lover of money at all, so I'm just going to go this direction. But if you work nonstop, all you do is work and you can never pursue a woman because you're so busy with your job, that ain't going to work either. She's not going to feel loved and cared for. But the problem is it goes even deeper. Some of us then is not being a lover of money. We'll say, well, or we do it. We do love money. Why can't be a missional community? Well, why? Well, I got to pick up another shift. Why? Are you, like are you struggling with your bills? No, I just, you know, I'm saving up so I can um, buy a new boat. Also, you miss missional community every week because you need to buy a new boat or you need to buy new golf clubs or new gun or new whatever like If your love for money keeps you out of community with other people, then it's a problem. Like There's nothing wrong with being a hard worker, but it's, the, it's this love for money that's driving us. No one is judging you on your manhood by what your check says. That's not what it's about. It's about, are you willing to go and work so we don't need to love money? The next part, it all goes together. It says, to manage your household well, to raise your children to be behaved with all dignity, to do this with dignity... And then if you can't do this, then you can't lead the church. Because if you can't lead your home, then you can't lead the church. And this is a huge problem in North America. And you're saying, well, again, maybe you're like, well, I don't want to lead in church. So why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. Because statistics show that way more, and I don't have time to dig into it, women come to church alone without their husbands or single women coming without their, you know, with, because there's, single men don't come as often. And then what happens is you see churches have to close their doors because there's no men to step up and lead. They eventually just close the doors. Women do step up and lead. And I want women to hear me. Some of you are extremely gifted, completely capable of leading. You are wired to do so. And yet the biblical framework for leading a church and leading a home is placed on the headship of a man. That is God's design. There's no other design he has for it. There's no... Other ways to do it. Now, I would say you can see people like Phoebe in the New Testament who is leading and doing things. There are positions to lead, but just not the leader, not the elder or pastor. And really, this is a, a part that is like, we're like, man, well, what does that look like then for me to manage my household well? Well, I was joking earlier about having a, a clean house well, and having your kids behave. Because think about it. Go back to being hospitable. If you're not doing some of these things, you're not managing your household well, you, your house is a mess, your kids aren't well-behaved, who wants to come over to your house? Be like, yeah, last time I was over there, the kid threw a Lego at me and poked me in the eye, and now I had to go to the doctor, you know, or whatever, like, their house is filthy, I had to go to the bathroom, I didn't want to sit on the toilet, or whatever it is, like, you have to manage your household well, be involved in what's going on, know your kids' grades, know what's going on in their lives, talk to them, know how much money you have, be dug in, manage your household well. This doesn't mean being a tyrant or a dictator. It says to do it with dignity. It's like your go-to for disciplining your kids can't be just screaming at them. It's got to be like, hey, let's get focused here and then talk to them. Some of your kids are probably the age they may need a swat, whatever, swat them on the butt. I don't know, that's between you and them. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Biblically, I can point to that. But no matter if they're 3 or 13 or 18, they're still living in your home. You have to discipline them and keep them on track and pointing them to Jesus. And what manage your household well looks like is knowing like every kid in your home is not the same. Like You can't treat each kid exactly the same. Like, they're different kids, different personalities. So if you just come at every kid the same exact way, that's not going to work. So, we have to manage our household well. We need to try to look more like Jesus and less like Homer Simpson. That's what we got to aim for. The next part is this it talks about um, an elder, but again, same qualifications. It says that he should not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. And so, you're thinking, well, that one, how does that really apply? And here's just really how, guys. We shouldn't ever install an elder who's just a new Christian. That would be bad, and you guys would need to call us and hold us accountable on that. But if you're here today, you're a man or a woman, and you're a Christian, you've been born again, then you shouldn't be prideful and conceited and puffed up because you did nothing. The Bible says very clearly that God saved you through grace, which is a, through faith. It is a gift of God. You're not saved by any of your works. And so there's nothing to be conceited about. So as I walk through those qualifications for you, Sorry, my throat is weird. As I walk through those for you, the big thing I see is that the standard for manhood is not based on your ability with tools, how many women you've slept with, how strong you are, um, how much money you make, none of that. So then the question is, why don't we live out biblical manhood? Why don't we? And it's it's an easy answer. It's sin. But it goes deeper than that. It has to. See, earlier this week I was on Twitter and I saw this tweet that said that liberals are trying to create weak men who won't see a need to protect, provide, and lead their families and will then give those responsibilities over to the government. So here's what I think about that. I think that comment, that tweet is 100% true and yet 100% false, and here's why. It is not liberals, it's Satan. Okay, I don't care if you're conservative, you're liberal, you're Republican, you're Democrat, it doesn't matter. What Satan's trying to do is he has a threefold thing. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he will then work through lost people. The Bible's very clear that we are fighting against not flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the air. So you're talking like Spiritual warfare, it's a real thing, okay? Like I know some people are like, oh, that sounds crazy. Well, it's, it, again, it's in the Bible, so we, we need to believe it. Satan will use any lost person, no matter their political leanings or their ideology, he will use anyone who's lost to then kill the idea of biblical manhood so he can destroy the nuclear family and steal away your desire and passion and, and just energy to even pursue out what you're supposed to do. He wants to take that away. If he can do that, then what he does, he sees churches closing. He sees all these households with single moms and no dads present. He's achieving his goal over and over and over again. We have to then, as much as he's working overtime, we have to work even harder. We have to work even harder to step up and be the men that we're supposed to be and not say, man, I'm just going to give over to sin. I'm just going to give over to sin because it's easier. This is easier for me. I don't really want to have to do this. That's hard leading my family. It's hard praying with my wife. It is. It's super awkward for me. I don't know why. I could pray with any of you. If I sit down and try to pray with her, like it just throws me for, and, like it just throws me off. I don't know. It feels awkward for me. But it's hard. Like I could be sinful, I not point my kids back to Jesus because it's hard. I don't know if I just let them be. They'll be all right. They'll they'll figure it out. Maybe they won't. So I can't give in to sin because that's what Satan wants. And so then we have to ask ourselves, so if we have this kind of, kind of opposition against this, how does it happen? Well, it's an easy answer as well. We look to Jesus and his word. It goes way deeper than that, but the re- what we do is we want to, for manhood, what we want to do is we want to listen to podcasts, right? We want to listen to Joe Rogan, jo- Jordan Peterson, David Groggins, Andrew Tate, whatever. Yesterday, or no, it was Friday, I listened to a podcast for Joe Rogan, and he had uh, Jordan Peterson on there. I was double dipping in that thing. Ironically enough, they were talking about manhood and why that's cool. They have some good points. But Jordan Peterson's probably the closest one to a Christian out of those four dudes I just named. And as he tried to use biblical stories and, and bi- the Bible to defend his case, that dude does not know what he's doing with the Bible yet. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Not for me to decide. That's between him and God. But yet he does not know. He was talking about the Bible in theory and as a story and how it just, in story not in the way that we would use it as story, and how it just is more of an illustration That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is 100% true historical facts, all inspired by God. And so what we do then is we try to say, well, I'm going to listen to those guys. I'm going to grow. No, the primary voice in your life cannot be someone who's not a Christian. We're all being discipled by someone, whether you're a believer in this room, um, man or woman. It doesn't matter. You're being discipled by someone. The Bible tells us very clearly that what is in our hearts will come out of our mouth in Matthew 15, 18. Like it's going to come out. Like the things that come out of our mouth is because of what's in our heart. And so if the things that you're putting into your life are not ones that are pointing you to biblical manhood, you're going to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't really live this out. And what you need then is you need dudes in your life who love Jesus more than they love you, so they'll call you out on it. But how do you get that? Well, go to missional community. If you're in a missional community and those dudes actually love Jesus, they should be willing to call you out and hold you accountable and say, hey, man, that ain't cool. Like, why don't you help your wife make those kids' plates? You got three little kids under the age of five, and you got your plate, and you're already sitting down eating, and she's over there struggling. Why don't you go help? Like, that's, and you can do that in love. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But then, dudes, you got to be willing to do that. You got to be willing to call people out and talk to them and have conversations with them, hold them accountable. So here's some things I want to give you, just so you understand, like, here's some ways you could actually live out, biblical, like, grow in biblical manhood. First, like I said, be in an missional community. But then in that, actually being transparent and being real and being known. It's, it's easy in this setting right here to come in to sit and to not do anything and, and then bounce out before anyone talk to you. It's harder in a missional community, but if you work really hard at it, you can be there and, be not, and not be known. Next is allowing people to speak into your life. So often, like, dudes don't want to do that. We're like, oh, you can't tell me what to do. I'm a grown man. Get out of my face, dude. Like, who are you talking to? That will be our attitude. Well, if they love you and they love Jesus, then you should give them space to talk talk into your life. Like, be able to say, hey, man, like, I don't think you're doing good. Like, give that. Don't be so prideful to think you have it all figured out. Next, you need to read the Bible and pray. Like, actually do so. Like, you need to know what the Bible says, its expectations for you, how to see the world. You need to pray and to seek God. You need to really evaluate yourself. Like, that's what I did this whole week. Like, this sermon was hard to prepare, for several reasons. One, I think manhood's completely under attack. Two, is super convicting. And then I know someone's probably going to leave here mad at me. But that's okay. Next, then you need to take your wife to the marriage retreat. If you're not married in this room, but you're dating someone, you should still go to the marriage retreat. If you're single and you're thinking, I really want to get married, maybe you should still come to the marriage retreat. Honestly, like we've had people do it so that you can get a better picture of who you should be looking to marry. And what that marriage will look like. It's not going to hurt you. I can promise you that. So those are just some things that can help you live out biblical manhood. But then it goes even deeper. Because if you are married or even single, there's ways that it applies, is that we need to be raising up the next generation to be biblical men. I have two 13-year-old boys. They're, They're twins. And so man, like one of the things that our culture is deficient in is is a rite of passage. Every other society in the world, except for Western culture, has a rite of passage. Like you become a man at this age and you start moving towards that. So when they were 13, I did something with them. All of our elders have swords. Mine's in my office. If you've ever been in my office, you see it's it's like probably this tall. It's really cool. They like it. Who doesn't like a sword? Especially that's us guys. We love swords. And so I bought them daggers. I bought them daggers. They're about this long, really cool, Damascus steel. I wrote them each an individual letter, and we went for a hike through the woods. And I sat and I talked to them about who they were and, and the qualities I saw in them and the things that they needed to probably, you know, continue to work on. And I told them, here's a dagger. You're not ready for a sword yet. One day, maybe, if you become an elder in your church, one day you can have a sword, but not right now. It's not time for that. See, my wife, I had a watch. I said this in the first service. My wife had a responsibility to carry them for nine months. I'm not being misogynistic. this is just the reality of it. You all get pregnant, not us. So, like, you have a responsibility. Take care of that baby or babies, in my wife's case, inside of you. Care for them, protect them, and then give birth to them. And then women, wives, moms, you then take them from being a baby to being boys. Men we still have a part to play, but yet that is kind of like that, that nurturing stage. They need their mom to nurture them. And then men, husbands, dads, we take them from boys to men. <laughs> ah, see, someone got it. Thank you. No one in the first service. I had to like make it clear. Got, get, you guys get it over here? Boys to men? Remember in the 90s? Come on, man. For real. <laughs> the only joke I put. <laughs> Only joke I put in this whole sermon, just try to get a little bit of a laugh because it's such a heavy topic, I feel like. But what we're doing in this, in our Western culture, especially in America, is we are letting boys linger into manhood as just in their adolescence. They're men, they've hit puberty, they're 18, 19, 20, 30, and yet they still live like boys. And our culture doesn't produce that they do that. Like We have to model biblical manhood for them. So as you pursue your wife, at home in a normal, healthy way, you're modeling for your sons to see how then they should pursue women. Like kids don't even know how to make a phone call today. Me and my wife used to talk on the phone for like three hours when we were dating on our home phone, right? And parents get on the line like, hey, hang up. We need the phone. Like they text. They don't talk. They don't know how to interact. So, like that's part of raising a kid is like, this is how you should talk to a girl. You actually need to, like, use your voice and talk to them. It's walking through. I'm not picking on my kids by no means. I'm just saying, like, those are the things. And as they turn 13, my expectations for them have grown. Like, I'm leaving to go out of town today as soon as the sermon's over. Like, then they have a responsibility to pick up the slack while I'm gone. That's what they do. I require more of them now than I did when they were 7 or 9 or 11 it's not just chores, but it's in those social skills, like I'm saying, to be a leader, have a better attitude, to step up and to be men. And then, again, you get that opportunity in your missional community, too, to display that to the kids that are in there. And then you're like, well, I don't have a son. That's cool. Your daughter, hopefully, is going to get married someday. Set the standard low and then wonder why you don't like the punk that she married. For real. because That could happen. You know, you didn't set any standard, and then you wonder, why why'd she marry this guy who's a deadbeat, and he doesn't want to do anything? Probably because you were a deadbeat your, her whole life, growing up. Like, set a godly example for her so that she doesn't marry some guy that you don't want her to be with. We have to make sure that we're training up the next generation to follow Jesus, be biblical men and biblical women. I mean, Corey would dig into that way more of a lack of biblical manhood. We're going to try to wrap it up. I went 45 minutes, and we're already at 43, and I got so much more content. This is detrimental to our society if we don't have biblical manhood. It's de- detrimental because it, it takes men out of the homes, it takes men out of the churches, and it takes qualified biblical men just out of our society who are leading. Think of how much better things would be if men were actually trying honestly trying to do this. No one's going to do it perfectly, but like our leaders, all of our people living this out to the best that they can. Like that's what we need to be doing. But I will say this, like there's some of you in this room, women, like you are very much wired to be a leader. Like you have to give your husband space to do this. Okay. Like you, you're a type A, you're hundred percent lead. And, And then every time they try to lead, you squash that. Every time they try to pursue you, you squash that. Don't do that. But men, you cannot just be like, oh, well, it's okay. I'm not going to do it then. I'm just going to give up. That's not all right. We have to keep going. The church will falter. It will fail. A lack of biblical manhood lessens the importance of marriage. That's why you see people even extending until like in their late 30s to get married, not because they just didn't find anyone, just because they just didn't want to. They're busy being boys Like, we need to change that. We have the ability to do that by how we raise our kids. And so, as we think through this, like, it really, really matters what we do and how we live it out because, men, hear me, if you don't lead in your families, you will leave your wife. I asked a woman in the church, I was like, I need some, like, advice here on how to word this. Like, how does it, what would it feel like? What would women experience? And She's like, well, you can feel isolated and alone if your husband's not leading. You feel a burden placed on you, not in like a way that you don't want to do, it, but you have a burden placed on you. that wasn't meant for you. Responsibilities that biblically was for the husband to do. You feel just like you're overlooked. You're not cared for. Like we don't. None of us in this room, if we're married, should want to leave our wives in that spot. Like we should want to live this out in a way that, man, it looks like Jesus. And so I have a ton more content. Well, we were at 45 minutes, and that is a long time. And I would love to talk to any of you guys more about it, because I, I really think this is a point that this is so, so important. And so I'm going to pray for us. Corey's going to come up, actually, and wrap up. I don't see Corey. That makes me nervous. I don't see him. Andrea. Ah, there he is, the man himself. I'm going to pray. Corey's going to lead you guys through responding to this. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for creating men and women, and how we both equally can reflect your image. And Lord, it is hard to live out biblical manhood. It is a daunting task, yet you empower us through your Holy Spirit to do so. So God, I pray that each of us in this room, watching online, God, that we will strive to actually do that, that we will live it out. And Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.